And she did what we were supposed to do. She did the one-year trip around the world, and she went back to being a lawyer, um, which is what I intended. And she early on was like, listen, real talk, you're, you're totally not going back. I was like, no, I am. This is just a year. And she's like, uh-huh. Like, you love this. You're, you're in trouble. Welcome to the Budget-Minded Traveler podcast, your source for the everyday inspiration and practical tips that make international travel accessible to everyone. Hey, everyone. We are continuing our expat series today with a twist. Our guest, Jody Ettenberg, is here to share some insight about the different things that she has learned and observed while living a sort of serial expat life in several places overseas. She's originally from Montreal, Canada, and she left her job as a corporate lawyer to travel the world for a year, and that was eight years ago. She is still on the go today, and she writes about her experiences at LegalNomads.com, which has largely turned into a place for her to explore one of her favorite things in life, which is food, and more specifically, soup. So we'll get to hear more about that and Jody in just a minute. First, I want to remind everyone about a couple things. One, if you're interested in connecting with other listeners and myself, and you have a Facebook account, come on over to the Budget Minded Traveler Facebook community group, which is specifically for sharing travel advice and questions and encouraging one another to travel the world sooner than later. You can find that at thebudgetmindedtraveler.com slash community. That'll take you straight there, or you can find it through the Budget Minded Traveler Facebook page itself as well. And the other thing is, this is exciting. I just bought my ticket to Patagonia for the November trip that I am leading. It is officially on We will be on a five-day trek in Chile that includes hiking, picnics, wood-fired hot tubs, and glacier kayaking, among other things, before crossing to the Argentinian side for a visit to one of the most famous mountaineering destinations in the world, trekking around Mount Fitzroy, and a hike on a glacier that makes up part of the third largest ice mass on the planet behind Antarctica and Greenland. So if Patagonia is on your list and you're considering joining me, act quickly to get one of the few spots left. Leading trips has been a dream of mine for quite some time, and I'm so grateful to be able to see this through starting this year in a place that is so special to me. So head on over to Patagonia2016.com for everything you need to know, and I can't wait to meet those of you who are going to say yes to this with me. All right, let's go ahead and get into today's interview. I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Miss Jody Ettenberg. So here we go with Jody. Jody, how are you today? It's a pleasure, of course, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you. I got to meet you briefly again in uh, in the last few weeks, but it's yeah. nice to have a longer conversation also. Yeah, definitely. Now, I'm really excited because um, I am certain that you're going to have a lot of cool stuff to share with my audience about about expatism, and uh, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to getting into it. Um, I want to start with the question I always start with, though. Where in the world are you today? So I'm actually in Indiana, which is not the usual answer that I give. <laughs> Did not see that coming. Not <laughs> see that coming. My, I actually um, thought you were in Canada. <laughs> not in Canada. My summer months are usually spent uh, alternating between either weddings and family time and then, you know, business meetings that I might have or conferences I'm speaking at. So uh, this summer I have just come from Montreal, but I'm spending time in Indianapolis where my stepsister lives and I'm staying with her and her family for 
for a while uh, just to catch up with them. Oh, awesome. Is that typical for you that you're you're kind of back in North America in the summertime or? Yeah, when people tell me, you know, aren't you ready to settle down? I joke that I have a routine. It's just not the routine that makes sense to most people. So for me, that's been, you know, winter's somewhere warm. And Mm -hmm. often that's been Southeast Asia. Most recently this year was Mexico, but that's that's a new one for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the summers, I come back and I take my time with family, which is something that's been really wonderful. I'm Mm -hmm. grateful for the amount of time that my lifestyle allows me to spend with them. And then also often there's some conferences or uh, universities I'm speaking to or something like that. So summer months are filled with, you know, family and work, but in a much more, um, much more organic way than if it was, you know, simply a, a nine to five job. Absolutely. I love that because I'm, I'm new to that train, but I, I'm on it now. You know, like I left, <laughs> I left last September. Um, right. I mean, Montana has winters for the diehard, like, the diehard winter lovers. And that's not me, just not anymore, you know? And so, so getting out for the whole winter and then coming back, I'm like, yes, this is the best time to be here. It's beautiful. It's like heaven on earth. Summer in Montana is just unbeatable. And people are like, wait, I don't understand. Like, why would you come back in the summer? It seems like that's the time you want to leave. I'm like, wait, no, I I think you have it backwards. (laughs) What are you talking about? Well, being being from Montreal, I certainly sympathize with cold winters. It's my Mm -hmm. mom sent a photo, you know, this April of something like a meter of snow that had fallen. But I think for me, you know, I've always been, I grew up downhill skiing and cold was part of my normal winter months. But since I started traveling and spending time away in the winters, my body's gotten less used to it. And I actually got dengue fever in Vietnam a few years ago, and my circulation's just never really recovered. Oh, and yes. I mm-hmm. have sort of, they, they think it's a version of Raynaud's basically where my, the ends of my fingers turn blue quite quickly when I'm cold and it's very painful. And so it's really just been not pleasant when I'm in colder climates. Even, even here in Indianapolis, I'm wearing like a sweatshirt and wool socks in the house and everyone else is in shorts. I think my body's just like, we need to go back somewhere else. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I just love the the irony of it's almost as if you have a doctor's prescription to stay away from the winter now. Right. I my parents that. are like, you're not Canadian anymore. If you can't handle the cold, give us back your passport. <laughs> you know what? Okay. So Montana, same, same. You know, I mean, we're like honorary Canadians just in Montana. And it's, it's like the same thing. Like you're not really Montanan anymore. You know, get out of here. <laughs> Because I find myself wearing sweatshirts when everyone else is wearing t-shirts. And I'm like, what's going on? I don't know. I adjust very quickly. And I and I have like extreme, extreme temperature. <laughs> I don't know. I deal with it in an extreme way. So, but I'm loving chasing the sun. I am, I'm happy in this place right now, actually. Yeah. I mean, um, if you can do it and you have the privilege of building that kind of yeah. life for yourself, then I think you know, you enjoy those weather patterns, then go for it. Why not? Absolutely. I totally agree. So before we get, you know, too far down this awesome summer tangent, um, <laughs> let's take a step back and uh, let's find out where this all began for you. Cause it's actually been quite a long time that you've been um, kind of doing this, right? Hasn't it been about eight years? Yeah. April 1st was eight years for me of, of doing this. Wow. As, okay. As a lifestyle. So- what, and what did your lifestyle look like before? Tell us so a little be- bit about that, like about who you who you were before. Man, I was a corporate lawyer uh, through and through. I was working, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90, sometimes 100 hour weeks. Mm. Um, I, I spent, I went to law school in Canada is the first thing to say. Uh, and I always mention it because tuition is quite low compared to 
you know, what most Americans have to deal with. My law school tuition was 1600 Canadian wow. at a time when the Canadian dollar was similar to what it is now. And so, wow. you know, there was no staggering debt that I carried with me through the years. And, and I mention it because I think it's really important to make clear that part of why I was able to live the life I'm currently living is that I didn't have that kind of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was recruited to be a lawyer in New York City with quite a few of us, actually, in my graduating year at McGill. I think we were 40 that were recruited that year. And I started at a big firm and I did mergers and acquisitions and some securities work. And then I switched to a different firm and did new media and technology work. And my life was a corporate lawyer's life, you know, really a lot of work, uh, often on the weekends in the office. And, and when I had time not to, you know, to run in the park or take a train out of the city and try and do some exploring. It did take my vacation time. I was allocated, you know, four hours a week, four weeks a year. Um, and I remember the first year I took vacation, I was asked, you know, do you really need to take all those three weeks at the same time? Because I was going to China mm-hmm. and I was like, I do actually need to. Yes. Um, but I also had just billed, you know, 3000 hours in 11 months. And I felt like three weeks was the least I should be allowed Dude, to do. No kidding. Yeah. It was pretty brutal. Um, I don't, I don't regret it. I don't think I was treated terribly. Uh, a lot of lawyers have horror stories, and that certainly wasn't my mm-hmm. uh, mo. I, I didn't actually burn out and you know flee the profession. What happened is, I had always wanted to go to Siberia because I had seen a documentary about the Trans Siberian trains, and I saw it as a as a kid. You know, I was still in high school when this PBS documentary came out. Mm-hmm. and I had sort of gotten it in my head, okay, I, I need to go there and I really want to see Siberia in person. And as the years went on and there were some other sites uh, of people as I was a lawyer that had done around the world trip and were writing about it, the Lost Girls was one of the first ones um, and they've all become friends. Uh, we, we, we had a lot in common. You know, they were New York women who left as well and, and they came back after their trip was over as I intended to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I basically planned and saved up uh, for travel, I, I eventually decided, okay, I don't just want to go to Siberia. I'd like to go visit more places. And so I started planning out this one year around the world itinerary, um, which was how the site was born. I wanted to just have a place that my family could, you know, follow along and not me bombarding them in their inboxes. This would be a less aggressive way of giving them my updates. They could check whenever they wanted. Uh, and I and I quit with another lawyer, which is why it's Legal Nomads with an S. Ah, um, okay. And I, I probably should have changed my name a while ago. I'm still debating whether I should just move everything over to like jodyettenberg.com or something. Mm-hmm. But she was another corporate lawyer. She was my opposing counsel on the last business deal I worked on, actually. <laughs> <laughs> During the closing dinner, we really clicked. And I was like, hey, I'm thinking of quitting my job. Not not at the closing dinner. We had dinner again because we were like, yay. Another, like, you know, ambitious woman in New York. Let's be friends. Oh, yeah. um, and we went for dinner and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm thinking of traveling for one year. And she was like, I was too. I was like, let's go together. And so we thought the site was hilarious. We named our subhead used to be two lawyers, one, one world, which was like a terrible two girls, one cup joke. <laughs> um, and she did what we were supposed to do. She did the one year trip around the world and she went back to being a lawyer, um, which is what I intended. And she early on was like, listen, real talk, you're, you're totally not going back. I was like, no, I am. This is just a year. And she's like, uh-huh. Like, you love this. You're, you're in trouble. Wow. Um, she knew. <laughs> she knew. And she, she wrote for the first few months, but then um, she didn't enjoy writing and was like, if you want to take over the site, like, it's all yours. 
Mm-hmm. And and I did. And of course, I never expected it to become the business that it has become. Um, but but it's been really fun because it was such an organic thing. And I think you do remain really grateful for these opportunities that come your way when it's something you didn't like specifically set out as a goal. The goal was, you know, I want to travel around the world. It had nothing to do with food when I set out. That was mm-hmm. very late in the game for me um, once I started traveling and, and just experiencing how important food was. So all of this was almost as much of a surprise to me as it was to everyone else. And that's been a really fun journey to be on. Mm-hmm. No kidding. So did you, at the beginning, had you planned your Siberia trip? Like, was that a three-week trip on its own? And then did you do a year? Or did you just kind of turn the three-week thing into, actually, I'm going to do a whole year? That's right. I, I was like, I'm going to do a full year. And obviously, Siberia will be part of it. Okay. Because that's that's the whole, Yeah. this is the genesis of it all, you know? Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that you didn't have student loans weighing you down because I think that that's um, I think that's a big thing for a lot of people or some sort of other debt that's kind of on top of you the whole time. But you just had I mean, you had a job where you got paid, you got to save money, you weren't really in debt. Right. And so you just got to kind of take off. Right. And I I think, you know, I do both sympathize and and think it's important to factor those things. And I get very upset with these blog posts or books that are like, just quit your job and do whatever and like, screw the man, because it's just not realistic. You know, I have readers who have families and mortgages, and they're trying to fit travel within the bounds of their capabilities. And I think that's much more responsible. I'm sufficiently lucky that I grew up in Canada, where education doesn't cost a fortune. And it ended up being, you know, a possibility to quit and travel the way I did. Um, and save up in a much more reasonable way. I mean, New York is still crazy expensive, of course. So my rent was stupid, but, yeah. um, yeah. but still, don't you miss know, that. don't miss that. <laughs> yeah. But it was still, it was still a much, much more beneficial position to begin from in terms of saving versus the, the friends I have who are still paying. Absolutely. Off. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm in the same boat. I, I kind of, rode the scholarship train. I mean, I applied for as many scholarships as I could and I went to an in-state school. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't ideal, but actually that led me to studying abroad, which kind of forced me out, you know, got me out of the country because I didn't, I didn't even want to go to the school that I went to. It's just that that's the one I could afford. And so by taking that route, you know, I graduated with no loans and then I was in this place of freedom, you know? Right. And, um, so yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, so how did your, did did you actually, when you were on this year long trip, did you actually go back after the year or did you stay out the whole time? I actually got really sick a few months in and I went back for a month. Oh, okay. Um, really sick. Not ideal. Um, I got this crazy respiratory infection and, uh, my, my lost like all the hearing in my left ear. Um, because my, it moved up to my head and like swole, 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 swelled my ear shut. It was not pleasant. Um, the flight back from, um, South Africa was pretty brutal because it was like 17 hours. And I just like, at that point I had to go home cause I just couldn't care for myself. Right. I actually got an email from someone recently, which is crazy. And she was like, hi, um, I was looking for stuff about Vietnam and I found your site and this may sound weird, but I'm just really glad you're alive because when we met up with you at the hostel in South Africa, like we weren't sure if you were going to make it like that's how out of it I was. And I was just like, man, I, I had not, obviously oh you, gosh. you don't remember things when you're that feverish, but I was just so sick. So oh I came back for a month and then I was like, and I flew straight to Russia from New York after that. I just got chills all over my body when you said that. <laughs> yeah. It was a pretty crazy email. That's to really scary. Mm-hmm. Did you get, did you use, did, 
this is kind of on a side tangent, but yes, did you have travel Podcasts are all about tangents. I know, right? But yeah, I, no, I'm I wondering, do. did you get like medevaced? Did you use travel insurance for this? I didn't. No, I flew myself home. You flew yourself home. Uh-huh. So you just I did have of, insurance though. I yeah. always do. Um, and, and it's, I, I have gotten into arguments with people about it because there are people who steadfastly refuse. And I'm always like, look, the bottom line is that I don't have the insurance for me. Like I have the insurance that if something truly terrible happens to me, I'm not going to bankrupt my family so they could fly my remains home. Mm, you know, right. the, the yeah. reason for it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with not burdening people because of the choices I make in my life. Hey, there you go. Okay. So back from that tangent then. Um, so <laughs> what did your first year look like just quickly? Like what was your itinerary? Did you go around the world? Besides it got, the month um, that you came home. It got all confused because I went home and then what happened is, uh, you know, life gets in the way. I sometimes get emails from people that say like, here's my spreadsheet of all my flights for a year. And I was like, no, like, no, no. That. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are, you're going to split up. I mean, I, it was a couple. I remember two sets of couples that wrote and were like, here's all our flights and everything we're doing. And I was like, you're not going to make it. Like you can't do this to your relationship. For me, I basically um, planned a specific vague itinerary. My first blog post was like, here's my itinerary. And of course, that didn't happen. Uh, from Russia, I was supposed to, there was supposed to be a, a Kilimanjaro climb. I was going to fly to, you know, to all these different places mm-hmm. before Russia. Didn't end up doing that because I couldn't walk. And then I basically went to China through the Trans-Siberian trains, which was like a big part of what I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I got an email from a really good friend of mine who was like, Hey, my fiance and I just split like two weeks before the wedding. And he was obviously a mess. And I've known him since I was a kid. And I was like, where are you? And he said, I'm in, I don't know where it's, I think he was in Bali. I was like, well, I'm in China. So let's meet in Malaysia and then we'll go travel together and I'll babysit you for a month. And like, I guarantee to hold your hair when you're throwing up and not let you you know, do anything too egregious. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I went and I spent the month with him and he was, you know, obviously grateful. But what happened is before we went to Thailand, which was our plan after visiting Kuala Lumpur, I was like, hey, so um, we just need to take the bus to this city called Malacca, which is in Malaysia because I read about a soup. And then I met this guy on a plane who like told me about this soup as well. And it's this cuisine called Baba Nonya. And it's like the you know, intersection between Pernakan food and Malay food and Chinese food. And let's just take the bus there and eat the soup at this one restaurant. And then we can go to Thailand. <laughs> yeah. And he was and like, the rest is history. <laughs> well, he was, and he was like, you're nuts. Like you're absolutely nuts. This is not what people do. I was like, no, this is what everyone does. And he was like, no, no, Jody, this is what you do. And I need you to start writing about it. And so part of why I started writing about food was because this guy was just like, I'll go and eat this stupid soup. If you start writing about food. And I was like, okay, <laughs> If you say so. And that has become a major part of your not, well, yeah, it's really really of your life. Not just like, it's definitely an obsession. Like I, I, my friends and I, the friend, of course you like bring in the people who are as obsessed as you are because there's such joy in sharing food. (laughs) And I remember uh, two friends, a couple that I had met from New Mexico in Oaxaca this past winter, we were like eating tacos and stuffing our face for breakfast. We found this great taco place. And, um, as we're eating and like drooling pork, I was like, so lunch, what are we going to do for yeah, lunch? Yeah. You know, it's, it's great when you have like-minded people who are as obsessed, but the thing is the reason it became so important to me is because my life was born of movement. And in so many of these countries, food is just so integral to how the country runs. 
you know, I always talk about how in Vietnamese, when you don't say that someone has a good soul, the translation is he has a good stomach instead. Mm -hmm. And I think it just indicates how incredibly critical food is for community and to bind people together in most places in the world. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not how I was brought up in North America. It's not how a lot of North Americans are brought up unless they have, you know, immigrant backgrounds where it is still a food obsessed world for them. So, uh, you know, it was a whole revelation for me and, and one that really changed the way I saw society binding together. And it changed the way that I was able to interact with the world as well. I love it. I I mean, for me, food is one of my absolute favorite parts about travel. And I'm always thinking about the next meal as well, you know. Well, we should so, definitely eat together then. The I know. Future. I think <laughs> I need to try one of these soups, though, because I haven't really delved into that world. So... And it's like all you talk about. So <laughs> it's true. I also have celiac disease. And, you know, for me, food became not just an important learning tool, but also an anxiety based issue for me mm-hmm. because I, I do get really sick. It's not just that I have a stomach issue. It's like three days of not being able to bend my hands in the morning and it affects your mood and mm. there's joint pain. There's just a lot that goes with it. I'm very sensitive. And I was diagnosed quite a while ago, you know, before the disease is as prevalent now. Um, or is diagnosed now, I'm sure it was prevalent. Uh, but, you know, this has become important also because there's this aspect of survival in it for me. Right. You know, I have I have issues at home as well. People don't take it very seriously in restaurants because it's quite trendy, but yeah. abroad there's just no knowledge of of, um, of what the disease is. And that's, that's why I've been working on these translation cards for people who have the disease so that um, I can help yeah. them. Actually, eat. this is a really good point. You have, uh, and we should share this, um, for our listeners, you have on your site gluten-free guides and you are working on these things. This is, this is, um, we sh- I'm going to link to this on the show notes page because this is a question that, you know, people do ask is, what, you know, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with it when you're overseas? What do you do? And so, um, if you have good tips on there, then we can, we can send people there. Yeah, definitely. And, and the cards I'm building, there's some great, translation cards people use celiactravel.com and, and I admire them for what they've done and I think they've provided a lot of value to people the problem is when I've used their cards in developing countries I still get sick and that's because people don't know what has wheat in it oh. they don't they don't know what the condiments are made of they just know like this is the name of it and that's that and in a lot of cases you know, they're like, no, this is fine. And it's totally not fine. I, I remember asking someone in Chiang Mai about the soup and it was they're like, it's made from mushrooms, but it was actually made from wheat gluten. Um, mm. the, the meatballs were not meat. They were gluten balls. Um, you know, there's, there's that kind of knowledge gap and, and it's not, there's no point in getting angry. You know, it wasn't her fault. It's not culturally part of her knowledge base, but the cards I've been building are super, super detailed and I'm offering them for free because there is a real pain point um, for people with the same disease. So I've done uh, the translation cards and, and paid the translator for them. Um, in some cases, readers have offered to translate when their mother tongue is the language I need, which has oh. been really cool. But I've done Italy, Greece, uh, Japan. I just put up the Vietnamese cards yesterday. Um, I've oh, now great. got Portugal and the Mandarin also translated. Wow, that's really wonderful. Okay, we're definitely linking to that. All of this, by the way, you guys, is at LegalNomads.com. Um, and there's a, there's a tab that says gluten-free guides. It's really easy to find. Um, so Thank check you. that out. That's awesome. What a great, uh, resource for people. So how then did you end up wanting to stay in Southeast Asia? And was it always 
were you always in Saigon or where where did you kind of put down roots? Because I know you were there for quite a while, weren't you? Yes. Yeah, so that routine we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, it has been the case basically since the second year. I've always gone back to North America during the summer months. Um, I'm really close to my family and there was really no option once I thought about this being a longer term thing. Originally, it stayed as it's more than a year because I over budgeted and I had never been to Southeast Asia and I didn't know how cheap street food was. So mm-hmm. I had budgeted more than I needed and I was like, oh, well, isn't that nice? Going. Yeah, <laughs> life could be worse. Um, so I just kept going, but I did come home for the summer because obviously, you know, I wanted to see my family. Um, I, I spent a long time in Bangkok and in Chiang Mai and I was up in Mehong Son as well in the north of Thailand near the Burmese border. Um, I traveled as well through the islands at some point and to other places in Thailand, but Bangkok, you know, I love Bangkok. I love the craziness and the chaos. I'm definitely a city person. Mm-hmm. And Chiang Mai was the place I would go to when I had, you know, a guidebook to write or my food book that I was writing. I went back there to do writing. It's a good place to hunker down and work and wander and eat. Um, but I, I prefer the frenetic energy to big cities. So Saigon and Bangkok to me were places I, I really enjoyed. Uh, I also spent, you know, time in Singapore and elsewhere traveling through Southeast Asia. But in terms of renting apartments and sticking to them, um, those, those few cities that I mentioned are the ones I primarily spent time in. Mm-hmm. What did you over the, throughout these experiences, it's been so long. Um, and it gives us such a perspective from being outside of our own country, away from so many things. Um, so many things. I mean, family, culture, media, food, activity, you know, American sports, everything that happens on this side, you know, of the Pacific or Atlantic or wherever you are, you know, um, what, what have you observed or learned about life at home since you've been away? Mm, That's a good question. I will say that I do follow sports Still, I actually was, I remember getting up at four in the morning to watch the Super Bowl in Saigon. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was like at a bar and everyone else is like stumbling out drunk. And the guy in my building totally thought I was like heading out for a booty call. And I was like, it's football. <laughs> um, That's awesome. <laughs> what have I learned about life at home? I think, you know, it's very easy to, to put people into sort of archetypes when you come home, there is like a real need to sort of sit within the uncomfortableness of reverse culture shock and Mm -hmm. not make judgment calls because Mm -hmm. it is tough to come back just as it's jarring to go somewhere so foreign sometimes. I find, you know, there are many places in the world I'm really, really comfortable in, which I'm grateful for, but it means that there's nowhere that feels truly like home. Um, And that's something I chose. But when I come back to North America, there is a very big dissonance in the kind of small talk conversations that I'm capable of because my day to day life when I'm traveling to some people seems ridiculous, but it truly is just my day to day. And so when you're having sort of small talk conversations with people, your input sometimes comes off as really strange. I have to check myself quite a bit mm-hmm. and, and not, you know, kind of sound like a douche when I'm not trying to. Right. But if someone, someone's talking about like, Oh, how do you know what a tagine is? I remember at a party. And I was like, I wasn't thinking. I just, oh, I lived with nomads in the desert. And I was just like, what, what am I? Yeah. Shut up, Jody. Um, because it sounds bragging and it's actually not. It really is my day to day, but I, I understand it's just not culturally normative. Um, I think I do find it 
hard sometimes to come back because the things that people complain about here seem uh, mm-hmm. seem a little just not worth complaining about. But I, mm-hmm. but I think that's the case anywhere. You know, I have friends in in many different countries who they come here and then they go back and they feel the same thing. I think it's more coming back into the fold what was normal more than it's a North American issue, right? Everywhere, I think, these kinds of plaintive things are, are problematic. It's just when you travel as an expat, be it as like the mini expat stints that I do or more long-term expats yeah. that are sent somewhere, you slide into society in a very different way and you're almost like exempt from the daily complaining that is a big part of, I think, existing in this world in some capacity, uh, be it small town gossip or, you know, gossip around the water well or whatever it is that happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's more that you take yourself outside those sort of cultural interactions in a way that makes them jarring when you return to what was before very normal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You lose the familiar familiarity of it and then it becomes something that you observe because it's so different from what you've been experiencing. Right. I think that's very true. And that's part of what perpetual travel in years you to is this sort of per- the state of constant observation. Uh, part of that has been really great in terms of having an outlet to write. I, I do tons of writing that doesn't end up on the blog just for my own sanity, you know, mm-hmm. but um, this idea of being able to move around and to observe things without judgment, I think is important. So much of day to day life involves judging, be it again, anywhere. This is not a North American problem. Mm-hmm. It's an everywhere problem. Um, and by constantly putting yourself in uncertain situations, by constantly pushing yourself to think about what makes people human and how they connect and the ways that we're similar in really disparate places, I think it, it sort of adds this sense of uncomfortableness that's really important to truly having clarity about the way the world works. Mm -hmm. I have kind of found it fascinating. um, Just, I think the priorities of people around the world uh, has fascinated me coming back to the, to the U S after just being, I mean, it's interesting because I've, I've done this before where I've been gone for long stints at a time nine or 10 months at a time and, you know, come back for the summer. But the thing that I'm noticing the most right now, and we do not have to go down this tangent, this is just an observation, (laughs) is that there is an incredible um, influence of crazy media in this country. And it's everywhere. And it's like, oh my gosh, wait, I don't want that in my face. Can you move that TV? Like, what happened to, you know, people just kind of going about their day and going out to have a drink and going hiking? And like, I mean, there's like, at least just where I was just living in Argentina, <laughs> there's such bad internet that it's just not a focus. Like people still, I'm not, I kid you not, people were still carrying like the phones that, that like text only, you know, like they, right, right, I mean, right. that's, it's not. I guess typical, but the fact that people still had them kind of blew my mind. People our age, you know, um, it was just a different, it's like, it's just a different priority there. It was much more social. And I, and I know that's kind of typical of Argentinian culture anyway, you know, they share mm-hmm. everything. They're very social people, but, um, that's just where I was. I was just in Patagonia in the depths of the, wo- you know, like in the depths of the woods just, and I came back and it was like, Whoa, I mean, I am not ready for this. You know, there's, there's an insane amount of just media influence here that 
that uh, that really kind of just makes you look at the priorities of the culture, really the society, and it, it's just kind of fascinating. Um, yeah, I think there's two important components to what you said. I mean, the first is the the media influence, which is very real and is very rabid, especially in an election cycle, yeah. and is far more sensational than I remember it either. And it's very damaging. I agree. There's a lot of articles about how you know the mainstream media is part of what has led to the rise of a candidate like Donald Trump. Um, but I think that also needs to be separated from being not not being willing to romanticize parts of society that we as travelers get involved in because, you know, higher society, high so richer, upper middle class societies everywhere in the world are just as sort of narcissistic or navel gazing in their ways that they interact with each other and their countries as mm -hmm. we are here. Um, but often those aren't the groups of people that we would interact with when we're traveling. So, right. you know, like you're in Patagonia, you're in nature, you're enjoying, um, and I did the same, you know, in the rural villages in Vietnam. That's not to say that the wealthier Vietnamese or the wealthier Argentines are any different oh, yeah. from the things, right, the <laughs> no things that we're complaining about, right. So I do always try and mention that because I do, there is a sort of like rose tinted glasses way of looking at the, like, oh, I saw all these poor people and they're happy. And like, yes, people make do with what they can and they find community and connection. And they, they don't sweat the small stuff in the way that we obsess over it in North America. But but I do think also that there is a necessary delineation that has to be made between the classes of society that we interact with when we travel. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's what you, I think it's what you put out there, what you attract, you know, what you're looking for as well. So I think we all kind of, I think we find that which, with which we want to identify when we travel because we have the freedom to do so, if that makes sense. Um, so on that same sort of line, what have you learned about yourself throughout all of this? I mean, a lot. In eight years, lady. I know. Um, I think I, I, I asked myself the question, like, how much is stuff I've learned because I've traveled and how much would I have learned if I lived a more, quote, normal life? Uh, that's just part of aging, naturally, you know, we are wiser as we get older, which usually means we know we don't know much. Um, I think, you know, this, this obsession with food, which has really changed my life, is a big part of what has changed in me for the better. Uh, it, it has forced me to take myself out of a profession that paid you to sweat the small stuff. Yep. Uh, and I think I'm very grateful for being able to see life and the world a little more holistically as a result, um, I never thought I would be a writer. I never thought I'd be doing this. I never had a desire to be doing a career in writing or public speaking. I mean, the things that I've learned are really that if I keep forcing myself to do what really scares me and to try and tackle the, not flaws, but, you know, the difficulties I have with certain ways that I interact with the world, uh, that I come out better for it. And, and I think that when you're a kid, you expect that you have everything figured out at the age of 30, which is just not what happens uh, at all. In fact, like the, there's big crisis that often happens 30 and 35 for most of my friends. Oh, um, me too. <laughs> and I think, you know, there, the, there's that, that saying that the Dalai Lama has said and others have said that you can't really help other people if, unless you understand what it means to suffer. And not that we should bring suffering out upon ourselves in any, you know, perpetual way, but the things that we can't control that happen to us, you know, I think I've spent a lot of my life trying to control them and ultimately 
what's really important is, is how you act when things do go wrong and how you choose to handle the crisis that happens after it. There's that whole, like, you can't learn to walk without stumbling. And I think mm. these eight years of travel have really forced me to reckon with that and to make the decision that when shit really went wrong, um, instead of writing a plaintive blog post, instead of being angry, instead of turning my heart coldly toward the things that were hurtful, I tried constantly to like do the self work because this was a decadent life that I chose. And I feel like the least I could do is to do the self work. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, I, I like myself more as a person now than I did before I quit. And that I'm very, very grateful for. I love what you just put into words. I really love it. That's been kind of what I've been observing in the last year. Um, and I know that my readers have been, you know, when, and listeners have been with me for a portion of that. And so they're, re- I think they're going to, that, that it just ties in and I love it. Um, <laughs> and putting yourself out there, I mean, it gives you such an opportunity. I mean, travel, travel gives you such an opportunity to find yourself in these situations because there are constantly new things um, that, that you're not familiar with. There are new decisions to be made. There are, I mean, something that can be simple at home, as in where do you get coffee this morning, is, is a difficult decision abroad when you don't speak the language, you can't read the language, you're not sure where to go, you're alone. Um, I mean, all of these kind of situations present different opportunities to strengthen yourself and put yourself out there and kind of just experience the beyond and, uh, and that kind of leads us to where, what you just described. Um, I mean, in a sense, there are also, you know, life things that can happen along the way. Um, thank you so much for this. This has been great. Um, so where, I do want to know, where are you planning to go next? Do you know, do you know yet? I think this summer is um, all over the place. Generally, I, I'll be here and then I'm, I think I'm going to Denver and I'm going up to New York and then I'll be back in Montreal. I actually rented a place in Montreal for a month downtown. Um, I haven't lived in downtown of my own city since probably 2000. And the city's changed tremendously. Um, and there's all these new restaurants. And next year is our 325th anniversary. So I'm excited to go and just like rediscover my own city for a month. And it's, it's an unusual opportunity. Yeah, so I'm happy. That's, that's I was really just cool. looking at Airbnbs and I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to stay home and see what that's like again. Um, <laughs> What's this place like? <laughs> this place? Because my parents live quite out from like 40 minutes out of the downtown core. So when I come back to Montreal, I don't stay downtown. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the suburbs and it's obviously not the same. So um, I sh- I'm excited about that. And then I, I'm supposed to be heading back to Oaxaca in Mexico where I've been uh, spent last winter. One winter oh. wasn't enough. Um, Are you going to, yeah. you're going to do that this winter? Yes, that is the plan. And my readers have been asking for Jody tours. They want, want food walks. So like, can you, can you feed me? I did that in Saigon very, very ad hoc. I was calling them food walks because they're not a tour. It's mostly just like readers want to meet and like learn about the things I like to eat and meet yeah. the vendors. So I'll probably do that again also given, given that I've been asked so many times to do so. Um, I might be in Mexico this winter. So, or at least in December. So, uh, if that does happen. I'll have to go on one of your food walks. Cause yes, you're welcome. I will, be feed, so I will feed you happily. <laughs> Love it. All right, cool. So um, one last thing, where can everybody find you if they want to um, follow your your journey? 
So I am uh, legalnomads.com and also Legal Nomads on all of the medias. <laughs> all of the medias. All of the medias. Mm-hmm. Uh, social generally is the same. So Facebook, Instagram is Legal Nomads as well. Um, and Twitter. And Twitter, I often share news articles and um, not travel stuff uh, or photos. It's much more related to like current events and it always has been for me. Um, but I do, I do love following journalists on Twitter, even if the medium has changed quite a bit over the years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, great. Jody, thank you so much. This has been so fun. My pleasure. It was great to hang out and chat a little more, even if it's not in person. And I wish you all the best with you. Thank you. You as well. Good luck on your continuing journey. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I want to pull a couple things out of it. Just that I think a theme that I noticed is that while Jody thought she was only going to go for a year, she's still on the road eight years later, which is completely not according to her plan. And along the way, she discovered a crazy love for food that she did not have before, that she writes about now and even helps others with, which has become one of the things that she's known for. And I bet she couldn't have told you that that was going to happen while she was working as a corporate lawyer either, which is just another thing that didn't necessarily go to plan, you know, but because she was willing to put herself out there and open herself up to opportunity, she has found this lifestyle that she's made work for her. And like she said, we don't have to know the plan by age 30. You know, we don't have to know what our future looks like. We don't have to be set in any specific path. I think that we just need to be open to opportunity and willing to listen when our hearts or even our gut, you know, is pushing us to do something. So the notes for this episode will be on the budgetmindedtraveler.com slash 73. And you can follow Jody's journey over at legalnomads.com. And don't forget to check out patagonia2016.com if you want to say yes to a big adventure this year with me. And that's it for today, you guys. Stay safe. See you next time.